The contents of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's financial objectives, financial situation or needs. Listeners should obtain independent advice before making any financial decisions. Hi, welcome to another edition of Health Kick. I'm Tim Borum. Well, the corporate world is being urged to be flexible in these strange times, and one company to show such agility is the ASX-listed Inconex. Now, as its name implies, Inconex is involved in medical cannabis, but it wasn't always the case. The company used to be a gold explorer, but then was used as a backdoor listing by a mob called Game Day, which sold mail-order mouthguards for amateur sports. At one stage, Game Day even had John Worsfold, who's a coach of AFL Team Essendon, on the board. Of course, there's not much junior sport being played uh, at the moment, at least in some parts of the country. Um, But uh, in any case, Inconex has turned to testing its cannabis formulations on a number of diseases. One of them is acute respiratory distress syndrome, the disorder that's the cause of mortality for most COVID-19 patients who die from the disease. Now, I've got with me Dr. Sud Agarwal to tell me more. Sud is one of the company's directors, but he's also its chief medical officer and a major shareholder. So uh, welcome, Sud. Uh, thank you, Tim. Great. Well, let's, uh, let's start at the start, Sud. Um, what, why and how did the company uh, turn to pot, so to speak? <laughs> right. Well, look, it's, it's probably an organic journey uh, which happened over several months. So even before I joined the company, they had already independently made the decision that uh, the cannabis industry was promising and it was something that they, they already had an interest in exploring. So prior to me joining, there, there was already many different uh, decisions underway which re- resulted in them applying for a, a cannabis import licence and a cannabis commercial sales licence. And then when I joined, which was about July 2019, I joined the company in the capacity as both the director and the chief medical officer, I restructured the company's program. So it was, it was very focused on novel cannabinoid drugs with significant defendable intellectual property behind them, which really targeted either orphan segments. So orphan means rare diseases where the government is going to give you funding to encourage you to go for those to try and solve those medical problems, or alternatively, major medical problems, which were significant unmet needs. Things like obstructive sleep apnea. That's a huge medical problem. It's not got any pharmacological solution to it today. And so we were trying to solve that using cannabinoid medicines. Right. Okay. Okay. And and what's the connection with your major shareholder, uh, Canvalate? So in addition to being the chief medical officer at Inconex, I'm both one of the co-founders, and also the CEO of Cambolate. And Cambolate is the major, I guess you could say, sales engine of cannab- uh, cannabinoid medicine Australia-wide. It's close to 50% of all cannabis sales in Australia. And in, in addition to that, it owns the only university-based cannabis CRO. That's a contract research organization in the world. So it's it's really responsible for doing clinical trials in cannabis uh, for predominantly North American companies, but but is that central engine in Australia for cannabis research? 
Oh, right. Okay. Okay. And so, so Canville, it's the uh, engine room for, for your trials, I, I presume. Yeah, absolutely. It's the, it's the engine room for, uh, many, many different trials, but, uh, Globally, it's become the central point where trials can occur, mainly because North America, and this is quite interesting, so cannabis has been liberalized in certainly in North America. Can- Canada was one of the first countries, as, as many of you know, and lots of states of the US. But because the US has made cannabis federally illegal still at this point, getting clinical research underway is close to impossible in the US. Similarly, in Canada, They've got, a, I guess, a, a federal system called run by Health Canada, which is their Department of Health, where every single research program needs an exemption permit to do a novel clinical trial. And that's extremely clunky and it's very slow. And it, it would take 12 to 18 months to even commence a clinical trial in Canada. So for that reason, Australia's now sort of carved out a niche as becoming, you could say, the primary cannabis research centre globally. So it's a, it's sort of an unexpected discovery in Australia, and and certainly Melbourne is the is the epicenter of that. So it's fantastic. Yes, yes. So so basically, basically the rules here are more consistent. That they might not be more liberalised in the US or at least parts of the US, but uh, you kind of know, know what you're getting and, and and what overview you'll be getting from state to state. Yeah, I think I think that's a, probably a really good way to describe it. So it's federally supported and supported at the state level. In addition to that, because it's been medicalized from day one, as in we're a pure play medical market, not a recreational market, the rules about what can and cannot be done are very transparent. And there are, you could say, you know, forms and processes in place where you can apply for those clinical trials, get ethics approval, and start recruiting patients safely. So that's, yeah. that's the real reason why Australia has become the epicenter for, for global cannabis trials. Yeah, okay, okay. And, of course, speaking of regulation, there's been a lot of uh, excitement in the sector about the federal government's uh, recent decision to uh, downschedule uh, cannabis oils. Or when I say the federal government, uh, it's actually the, uh, the agency, the Therapeutic Goods Administration. Um, so, in, in effect... Uh, the oils can be available over the counter at, at pharmacies for uh, certain conditions. It's not going to be a free for all. What, what what do you make of all of this? Yeah, so look, we've we've been part of this process and we've been engaging with the government really since the early days when this was first proposed. And um, what the TGA's interim decision that has been announced in the very recent time, it's it's kind of consistent with what they've been saying all along. And the TGA has has not taken this decision lightly. They're, they issued a, a discussion paper which showed that low-dose cannabidiol, CBD, is very safe for community use without a physician involvement. And then they've gradually taken all the steps to you know, bring all the different stakeholders on side and release that information to the public to get public support. And now it looks like they're going to be rolling out low-dose CBD. That's up to 60 milligrams per day in up to a 30-day packet. So each vial or each box of capsules will contain up to 30 doses of 60 milligrams per day. And that's going to be, it looks like that's going to be released from June 2000, sorry, 2021. So it's a, it's a look, a very exciting prospect. And I'd probably say it's, it's still a baby step in the grand scheme of things. So at some stage, we probably expect that CBD maximum dose ceiling to be lifted, to be higher. Uh, and but at, at this stage, the requirements are 
that all those products that do plan to be sold over the counter by a pharmacist without a doctor's intervention will have to meet a few different requirements. Number one, they're going to be indication specific, meaning that that product is targeted for a single medical complaint. It's not a a generic product that goes for every single thing. Number two, it's going to have to go through a whole swathe of clinical trials as per any other pharmaceutical product. It needs to demonstrate quality, safety, and efficacy. It's got to hit those critical efficacy endpoints that uh, which wrap around the therapeutic claim it's making. It's going to demonstrate safety in humans so it's not causing them any significant adverse events. And it's got to demonstrate quality. Okay, can we reproduce and make this medicine every time so that each batch is the same. There's no batch-to-batch variability. So it's a, look, it's a really exciting space, and it's almost become a space race now for, for a number of different Australian companies trying to see who can get their product over the line and approved with the Therapeutic Goods Administration the fastest. Mm-hmm. And, and is Inconex, uh, are you involved in this race uh, y- yourselves, or, or do you expect to be? Yeah, look, I think that's still under discussion internally at Inconex. Uh, certainly, I'm involved uh, in the Campbellate capacity with a, with a number of products. And uh, Inconex are still at that discussion point where they're making a decision whether they want to participate in that race too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, great. All right. Now, in, in the meantime, uh, on the clinical front, you've uh, recently returned some positive in vitro results, so results from the lab, uh, for work on uh, formulating your cannabinoids to treat sepsis-associated acute respiratory syndrome. Uh, now, now, tell me more about uh, about how that panned out. Yeah, so that's that, look, that's a very interesting uh, disease. So this is an example of, of an orphan disease. So that means an orphan disease is a rare disease which occurs in less than 200,000 people in the US per year. That's what the FDA's definition of an orphan disease is. And so whilst adult acute respiratory distress syndrome is uncommon there are many different causes that can cause it but the single most common cause is some form of sepsis some form of infection now uh, historically that's either been a urinary sepsis or that's been a, a pulmonary sepsis a lung infection now something like a pneumonia that leads to it or a urinary tract infection that leads to it and the common endpoint is this effectively this respiratory collapse or difficulty breathing which results in the patient ending up in an intensive care unit typically getting intubated and needing intravenous antibiotics. But you could say they're in a, in a very critical state with a very high risk of mortality. Now, of more recent time, COVID has become one of the major contributors to that. And in intensive care units around the developed world everywhere, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of patients who have got this sepsis-associated acute adult respiratory distress syndrome, and they are suffering significant issues. So... Now the the challenge has always been how do it, when somebody gets that primary infection how do you stop it in, increasing in severity such to the point where they develop that ARDS how do you break that cycle and I guess the novel drug that we've got here this IHL six seven five A is a proposed solution for that now when you get an infection, your body typically tries to mount an inflammatory reaction to boost the immune system to combat it. And while it's doing that in good faith, sometimes the inflammatory reaction and your body's uh, immune response can be more damaging than the underlying infection. And that's what one of the issues are are in ARDS. 
it's that inflammatory response that causes your body to to really have all these medical problems. So our novel drug solution is trying to break that. And originally we did an animal study which was in several rodents and we had very encouraging results. And this drug is a combination drug consisting of of two significant active components. One is CBD and the second component I'm going to have to keep uh, secretive about at the moment because the the patents are just being reworked on. But there's a second component within that within that combination drug, and it's those two components acting in a manner that uh, acts in a unique manner that's quite novel that causes that breaking in that cycle. If, if I could just chime in here, you um uh, you, you you mentioned it, it's uh, it's in combination. Um, for, from your material, I, I was interested to see it. it's actually it, it's in combination with hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. I can never quite pronounce it. Um, it's obviously created a lot of controversy, you know, particularly in the US uh, with uh, uh, Donald Trump's advocacy yeah. of it and, and, and what have you. But uh, um, it, it, it sounds like it, it does have some uh, efficacy. Yeah, absolutely. So um, y- you're right. There's been very mixed results from global hydroxychloroquine studies. Uh, certainly some of the early results from Wuhan in China showed that hydroxychloroquine was very effective at treating COVID, uh, causing significant respiratory compromise. But then some other results from, from Paris in France showed that hydroxychloroquine uh, did not meet the endpoints and wasn't significant in, in reducing the uh, the the worsening or developing ARDS after after COVID. So I guess our, our novelty is that the combination of the two somehow is creating is creating that ablation of that response, that significant inflammatory response, which is causing the deterioration of the patient. And certainly in our rodent model, the results were extremely positive and they showed uh, an outcome that's, uh, that's been deemed statistically significant. The in vitro model that we followed that up with as well was uh, we've been having very encouraging results. And so really once we move on to in-human clinical trials, I guess that's where the future is. Now, one of the unique aspects of this drug and also about the the FDA is that they have an emergency use authorization program where if you can show significant optimal outcomes in your animal and in vitro studies, you can actually go straight to approved in human use via this EUA program in the US. So that's that's really the next steps for uh, for this combination product. Yeah. Okay. And and with the next step, uh, this this would involve uh, further trialing, uh, of course, would, wouldn't it? E- even though it is fast track. I mean, you have obviously got to have the have the human guinea pigs as well. Uh, well, actually, you can sell under this emergency use authorization program without any actual inhuman data. You can do it purely based off the animal and in vitro data. Of course, naturally, we're going to be doing human studies as well, just to work out the optimal dose and the optimal formulation, but uh, there's there's a possibility they can actually occur, un- occur concurrently. Okay, that and and, and that's uh, the that's just because of the fast track nature of it. It's such a uh, urgent priority. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It, it would be considered, I guess, unjust to not allow humans to access a medicine while it's still in in, in progress of being developed because of concerns about whether uh, it's going to be safe. So as long as you've got a reasonable body of evidence to suggest that it's it's safe and efficacious, they're allowed to, I guess that they're allowing you to go straight to the market without having to do the full swathe of normal clinical trials. 
Yes, and it's also it's also a last line treatment, isn't it? And in, in in other words, they, these patients are are very very ill. They're, they're being in, in, intubated. They're, they're on ventilators. Uh, they're not in a good way at all. Absolutely, yeah. So it's it's an emergency treatment for people who are already suffering great distress. So yeah, that's the idea. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Terrific. Now, now, so you mentioned earlier uh, that you've got a number of other programs. Um, I think you mentioned uh, obstructive sleep apnea, which is uh, bad snoring, or in fact, it could be fatal snoring. Um, traumatic brain injury and concussion, which, which is another interesting one, um, and and several others. Uh, what what are the most uh, advanced uh, programs? Yeah, but probably the obstructive sleep apnea program is is the furthest along. So that's. Now, obviously, as you said, you know, it's a significant medical disease. I think over 10% of people in any developed countries suffer with obstructive sleep apnea. Currently, most people who suffer with it uh, use a CPAP mask to try and uh, improve their, their quality of sleep overnight and reduce the daytime somnolence that they suffer with and the drowsiness in the daytime. Typically, though, people who start using CPAP treatment, about 50% of them have, have dropped it by, at the 12-month mark because it's just intolerable in terms of noise or uh, just the discomfort associated with it. It makes them look like Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very true. No, it's very true. And, <laughs> and at the moment, so you know, even though it's been around for a long time, obstructive sleep apnea has been, I guess, a critical diagnosis since the 70s. Uh, even to this point now, sort of 50 years later, we still haven't developed a medical cure, so a pharmacological cure or a treatment for it. We're still reliant on a physical product that sits on your face overnight, you know, which is, I guess, it's quite disappointing from a uh, from a drug development perspective. Now, there's already quite a lot of evidence saying that dronabinol, which is a synthetic form of THC, is a very effective treatment for it. It actually reduces the the AHI, which is the apnea hypopnea index associated, which is the I guess the primary measure of the severity of your sleep apnea, it reduces that by about 30%. And that's been shown in clinical trials you know, over the last 15 years. Yeah, okay. So, so what's, what's sort of the mechanism of action there? Right. So, so if you imagine sleep apnea, there's two major ba- uh, camps for sleep apnea. One camp is where people have typically a very fat neck, an obese neck. And when they sleep and their muscle tone is reduced, the weight of all the fat and muscle in the neck obstructs the trachea it literally clamps down and obstructs the trachea and reduces the diameter or the aperture of the actual windpipe the trachea so their breathing is impaired the second type is where the brain basically overbreathes and then underbreathes and overbreathes and underbreathes so the the actual loop gain of the breathing response the cyclical breathing response has not been set correctly so typically they hyperventilate and they blow off all their carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide is the normal trigger for the brain to inspire. But because they've hyperventilated and blown off their carbon dioxide to a low level, they've no longer got that stimulation to breathe in, and they have an apnea. Apnea means stopping breathing. And typically, you know, if, if you listen to their breathing pattern overnight, they stop, start, stop, start all night, and they have a terrible sleep, and they've never really entered that deep REM-style sleep and they're still drowsy, and they've got baggy eyes the following day. So it's, it's now thought that about 90% of all sleep apnea diagnosis is a mixed pattern. It's got a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B. So whilst our tablet will not be able to do anything to fix the people with the, 
the fat neck which obstructs the trachea, it is very effective against the second type, which is where that brain is, the brain responds to overbreathe and underbreathe. It just dampens that brain's response to diminish that hyperventilation response, which causes the apnea in the first place. So it's actually, it's actually been shown to be quite effective. Now, ours again is a combination drug. And this time, uh, it's because one of the issues with dronabinol was, and as I said before, dronabinol is a synthetic form of THC, which is the, I guess you could say, the psychoactive component of the cannabis plant. Yes. It's the, the problem with it is if you take a high enough dose to treat your sleep apnea, and let's say you took it at, say, 10 p.m. at night, by the time it's 8 a.m. in the morning or 7 in the a.m. in the morning and you've got to go to work or drive, your THC levels are still too high to be safe. You wouldn't be permitted to drive safely by Vic Roads or the TAC standards. So we've had to reduce that dronabinol dose, the THC dose, add a second active agent which augments the action of that of the THC, such that in a way that when you're when you're then waking up in the morning, you've no longer got any THC in your bloodstream, so you can drive safely, and you no longer got that kind of hangover feeling or drowsiness from the uh, the residual THC in your blood. Mm, mm. Now it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you, you actually sort of allude to a, a, a wider issue that uh, medical cannabis. Uh, well, it's it, it's well on the way to, to being legalised, if not already, or well on the way to being widely used. But uh, yes, what what happens if you're pulled over for for a uh, for, for a drug test? Uh, if your uh, if your medication contains THC, it's uh... yeah, that's a, that's a very important <laughs> point. So uh, at the moment, the basically the rule is that so that first of all, there's two there's two parts, I guess, is what can the government test for, and what is the official legislation. So the, the official legislation is at the moment that if you've taken cannabis, you're not supposed to drive. And there's not enough clarity breaking it down into different components. Now, most most of the medical fraternity believe if you're taking a THC-free medicine, so to say a pure CBD medicine, which is the non-psychoactive component, whilst it's still, while it, makes you a bit, it can make you a bit drowsy and it does re- reduce anxiety, it shouldn't impair the quality of your driving. Having said that, the legislation is very grey around that. Now, I guess the problem arises is what can they test? So the current roadside saliva test that, say, the the Victorian police use actually only measures THC. So even if you took a very, very high dose of CBD, it can't be picked up on that. Now, THC, on the other hand, it's extremely sensitive for. So even if you'd taken... um, a reasonable dose of THC a few days before, there's still a possibility it's going to be picked up. So this is this is one of the issues that you do need some kind of card or a letter from your physician saying that you know I'm on a doctor prescribed THC medicine, and that yes. might be the reason. But in general, the medical advice that we give patients is if you're on a THC medicine, do not drive, do not operate machinery. Ah uh, yes, yes, and 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 for some time because it can, it can hang around for a while, can't it? In your uh, in your bloodstream. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So the, the, again, the law is unclear. There is, a, a, I guess, a threshold safety limit in terms of blood levels and also in terms of the saliva test. But they are heavily reliant on what you've eaten or drunk in the in the hours before to get the actual final concentration. And I guess um, if you're on a medication and you took it before, there's probably, I guess, a margin of safety that the police will give you because you can say it's a prescribed medicine. 
Okay, great. All right, good, good to know. Good to know. Um, all right, and look, just, just finally, um, just, just changing tack, uh, turning uh, to uh, the company's uh, finances. Um, you, 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 you made a little bit of revenue. I see last year about one point three million. Um, you, you've got a, you've got cash of about three point six million. Uh, but but you uh, burnt about uh, three point nine million last year. Um, look, look in, in in short, do, do you need to do a capital raising? How are you placed? No, look at this point, the uh, the cash coffers are looking very healthy. So there's still uh, a reasonable amount of money left from the original capital raise, and at the moment there are there are lots of uh, options which are now in the money, and people are now cashing in those options. So there'll be enough money in the bank to pay for. Are phase two studies, so that there's no, I guess there's no, there's no imminent capital raise on the on the horizon. Okay, all right, terrific. Oh, so well, look, look uh, excellent to talk. Um, we, we've covered a lot of ground. You've, uh, as a company, you've got uh, a, a lot uh, bubbling away in the pot, uh, so so to speak. And uh, good luck with it all. Fantastic to speak to you. Look forward to speaking again. Mm-hmm.